If you're listening to this and you're a startup or a scale up employee, and you have this impatience, you display this impatience, and rather than having it rewarded or praised as it was for me and Chris, you get shut down repeatedly. You should consider working somewhere else, not only because life's too short to put up with that, but because the startup is going to fail, right? Listen, the point of this episode is this is fundamental to startup success. N14 are a specialist recruiting partner, finding teams of missionary engineers who are excited to work with your startup. They act as an extension of your brand into their network of incredible engineers. Check them out at n14.io. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. I'm Yaniv, a recovering software engineer who loves building high-performing organizations. I have worked at Google and a number of scale-ups, and am now co-founder at Circular, a high-growth startup. And I'm Chris. I've been building products and startups for over 20 years, including 10 years in Silicon Valley. I work with startups as a strategic advisor and help them avoid landmines and fast forward to the best high growth outcomes as quickly as possible. Our job on this show is to guide you through the unique mindset and approach that drives Silicon Valley style disruption at scale. On today's episode, we're going to discuss a set of slightly broader subjects that relate not just to startups, but success and leadership in life in general. Hustle, opportunity cost, and building momentum. Okay, Chris, so you were fast out of the blocks on this one. I saw all your notes in our run sheet, and we really both agree that momentum is critical to startup success. So let's break down why that is. So a large part of startup success is really rooted in momentum. And you might ask the question, well, why? It's because startups, as you hear us talk about at the beginning of each of our episodes, every episode, they're really about high growth and high growth requires speed and compounding effects. But again, like why, why are startups about this speed, this compounding effects, this growth? Because startups are typically based on software and software is relatively easy to create relatively, right? You're not manufacturing widgets. You're not building bridges. You're sitting behind a desk, writing lines of code, and that code is relatively easy to build and to execute millions and millions of times. Software economics, flywheel effects, VC funding dynamics mean that software and internet-based businesses are typically, if not winner takes all, then they're typically winner takes most. So Joe's tire shop down in the local suburb A is not going to take all the oxygen out of the room for tire shops everywhere. But there's really only a few social networks globally. There's only a few corporate chat tools like Slack globally. There's only a few collaboration tools that matter globally. There's a handful of them, but there isn't a tire shop in every suburb. So it is winner take most. The third reason that startups are all about speed and growth is because momentum attracts momentum and success. And so users, investors, employees want to work at the companies that are winning. And also because you typically have a limited runway, right? You raise capital to spend it and you want to achieve as much as you possibly can before that capital runs out, before your runway runs out. And generally an impatience with the status quo, bureaucracy and frustration is exactly how founders, entrepreneurs, startups identify problems and opportunities to disrupt in the world. So because all that's going on, this means three key important things for your startup. Competition is going to come for you. 
Opportunity cost is typically your largest cost. And we're going to talk about opportunity cost and what that means exactly. And smart investors are looking for this kind of speed, this kind of perspective, this kind of hustle. And so they're going to invest in the companies that understand it and are moving with this dynamic in mind. So the first thing is maybe defining momentum in this context. I remember studying physics in high school. I'm sure this is not a great definition for physics, but momentum in this case is to be able to move at a high speed for a prolonged period. I think that's what's really important here. It's speed and time. If you can move quickly, but only for a short period and then things slow down, then you've lost momentum. If you are moving slowly for a long time, you never had momentum in the first place. So I think that's really what we're talking about here. And I wanted to add another lens on the thinking here, which is another term that gets misused a lot, which is that startups typically, in order to be successful, need to experience a prolonged period of exponential growth. Now, exponential is a term that is very badly misused in the common lexicon these days to just mean like fast or rapid or mad growth. But exponential has an actual meaning that I think is important in this context, which is when you're growing at a fixed percentage every month or every year, every fixed period of time. I like to say 1% growth is exponential growth. 100% growth is exponential growth. But if you're growing by $10 million every year, that is not exponential growth. So just because your growth is exponential doesn't mean it's good. What really matters is that your growth is exponential, but that also that the exponent is actually high. In other words, that instead of growing 1% every year, you're growing 200, 300, 400% every year in those early years, if not more. So that's where the speed comes in. The speed comes in by saying, okay, that is your exponent. And after a few years, the difference between growing, forget 1%, the difference between growing 50% every year and 100% every year is enormous. So when we talk about compounding, compounding is a side effect or is a corollary of exponential growth. You compound because the bigger you get, the more you're able to grow because you're growing relative to your current size. And software, for the reasons that you mentioned, Chris, because it's easy to create, because it has the economics, the flywheels, and so on. The whole point, and we've talked about this in many previous episodes, is you put in this upfront capital investment in order to create exponential growth. And exponential growth starts slowly because you're starting from a small base. Growing 100% from $1,000 monthly revenue is not a lot. But when you've got $10 million monthly revenue, then holy cow, that's a lot. So the momentum piece is you need to keep this going for quite a while for it to make a difference. So that is why it is really important to have the sustainable process where you are moving fast and improving at a good rate for a prolonged period, because that's the way that you break out of being small, of being a startup and become a serious tech business, which is really what this is all about. It's important to recognize that you need to compare your momentum to competition globally. So one of the things I see outside of Silicon Valley is that people in their local communities, whether it's Europe or Australia or Southeast Asia, founders tend to have a little more hustle, a little bit more speed than the other people in that community. But you're competing against people in Silicon Valley and in New York and in Israel and in London. So you need to have a kind of momentum that is outpacing the global benchmark. I often say that when I was at Uber, Uber moved like 150 miles an hour and Silicon Valley moves like a hundred miles an hour and Australia moves like 80 miles an hour <laughs> and Brisbane, which is my hometown moves like 50 miles an hour. And, and that re-entry whiplash 
was kind of dramatic. And if I really didn't continue to work with companies internationally while living in Brisbane, I would have probably drove myself crazy because you see the pace of change, the pace of thinking, the pace of speaking, the pace of deal-making, the pace of decision-making at an Uber, at a Silicon Valley, and you can't help but accelerate your own pace across all of those dimensions. You just walk a little faster, you talk a little faster, you think a little faster, and you act a little faster. If you're not listening to this podcast at 2x, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it, it really recalibrates your brain being in those markets. And hopefully coming out of listening to this episode, we can give you just a little taste of that recalibration to rethink the pace at which you're doing things to a global benchmark. Now, there's a number of mindsets you can develop to help you understand whether you're moving fast or not, or help give you a little bit of paranoia, a little bit of pep in your step as you're thinking about your pace of execution and your momentum. Let me touch on three of them and then let's unpack them together. The first is understanding opportunity cost. I mentioned that earlier on and we'll unpack that in a bit of detail. The second mindset that's worth knowing about is having patience for the long-term, for long-term processes. And then the third is having impatience for short-term delays in bureaucracy. Those three things, plus I'm sure many more, but those three things we have on our radar for today's episode are really worth unpacking. And we might touch on a few more as we go as well. So just before we dive in, a quick aside, as we were talking before we started recording, Chris, about the term hustle, which I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with, and I know you used it in this context. I think it's a term that's often misunderstood or maybe just not quite the right term for what we mean here. Because when I see people talk about hustle, it often looks to me like a lot of very rapid activity, just doing a lot of stuff fast. But what you're talking about is a bit more subtle than that. You, you mentioned it very well here. It's this interesting combination of patience and impatience. The patience for long-term processes, the understanding of the shape of exponential growth, which is things don't move that fast for a long time. And then after a while, they really are moving fast in terms of your growth. But impatience with short-term delays. So that's really about making sure that you keeping that exponent up, that you are really moving fast in the direction of your exponential growth. So this is actually quite a disciplined process. It's not just about chasing shiny objects, which is sometimes what hustling looks like, just chasing deals, working ridiculous hours or whatever. No, it's actually about having the discipline to have a long-term vision and an impatience with anything that slows you down on that road to the long-term vision. When I think of hustle, I think of a little of impatience with bureaucracy and friction and stumbling blocks. I'll give just a very simple example out of my own personal life. And I've got some examples of my own, but I'll talk about my wife's recent actions, which made me very, very proud of her. We were looking for a cot for our son. And we spoke to a local retailer here, actually a chain for baby goods. And they said, oh, it's not going to arrive for six to eight weeks. And, you know, my wife and I have talked about hustle and about getting stuff done. And she's like, six to eight weeks, screw that. So she called the manufacturer of the product and said, do you guys have any of these in stock? And now they couldn't sell them to her directly because they have an exclusive relationship with this retailer. But the guy called around the retailer, called their warehouse, spoke to leadership, found her a cot and got it dispatched from the warehouse to our local store. And she's now gotten that cot in about four days. Amazing. Right? And I was just incredibly proud of her because this is the kind of thing she's seen me do many, many times. I'm sure, Yanev, you've got the same examples. 
But that's what I mean by hustle. It's not taking no for an answer. It's recognizing the bureaucracy, the inefficiency in the immediate world around you and slicing through that like a hot knife through butter to get to your outcome, get to a reasoned, principled outcome, not to a thrashy, shiny object outcome as quickly as you can so that you can keep that exponent high in your overall momentum. Maybe the problem is Gary V. When I hear the word hustle, I think of Gary V and I have no idea where his plan is headed. I think we're, we're, we're in complete agreement. Perhaps the best way to put it is it is a, an intolerance of obstacles and bureaucracy. And that only comes, that real hustle only comes when you have a very clear idea where you're going and you have the patience to see your plan through. Because even with hustle, big plans of creating a globally significant company, they take a long time to come to fruition, but they'll only come to fruition at all if you are not tolerant of delays and inefficiencies and obstacles. So let's cover the third element, which is understanding opportunity costs. We've talked about the patience for long-term processes, the impatience for short-term delays. But the third thing is really to know what opportunity costs means. And this very much ties into things like prioritization and making trade-offs. I really think the human brain is not designed to understand opportunity cost. So it's really easy to just not intuitively have a sense for it and to forget it in day-to-day -day life. But let's first define what is opportunity cost, and then let's define how to measure it or how to pay attention to it day-to-day. -day. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you invest $100 in the stock market and the stock you invested in doubles in value. So you now have $200 in your brokerage account. Opportunity cost is not having invested that $100 and therefore missing out on the second $100. The opportunity cost is the extra $100 you would have earned if you had invested your first $100. It is the profit, the benefit you did not get. And your virtual self, your, your self in the multiverse paid that cost. For many startups, much of the time, opportunity cost is their highest cost. And if they're able to move faster, find product market fit more effectively, improve their marketing campaigns, their onboarding funnels, hire better people more effectively, then they are reducing the money they're leaving on the table. And therefore, by contrast, increasing the amount of money they're able to bring in quickly, the amount of growth they're able to accelerate towards, the amount of investor capital they're able to attract, the flywheel they're able to spin, and the moat they're ultimately able to build around their business before competition comes in and comes after them. It's really about resource allocation and decision-making. So in a startup or really anywhere in life, opportunity cost is pervasive. I like your multiverse way of thinking about it, Chris. What you have is a limited resource. If nothing else, it is your time and attention, but it usually includes other things like money. And when you're making a decision to do something or to allocate your resources, your attention, your time to any particular thing, you are implicitly making a decision not to allocate that same finite resource to any number of other things. It can seem like a bit of a, a sort of down way of thinking about things in a way where you're like, okay, every decision you make is really saying no to many, many other possibilities, but that's the truth of life. So when we talk about opportunity cost, it's really about saying that when you make a decision to do something, 
it's not enough for it to have a positive return on investment. It's not enough to say, hey, if I take this $100 and I put it in my savings account, I'll have $101 at the end of the year. So it's a good decision. No, because that $100 could be used elsewhere. So when you make any decision, you really need to be considering the alternate uses that that resource, including your time, the most precious resource of all, is being put to. And this is quite insidious because, you know, with my $100 example, or my riff on, on, on your $100 example, Chris, it's obvious. You're like, well, of course, if I put my $100 into a savings account, then I'm missing out on bigger opportunities. But at a startup, there are many opportunities that look like great opportunities. There are things that are like, oh, here's a partnership that is going to drive growth and I don't have to pay for it. So why not take on that partnership? And the reason is by taking on that partnership, you're implicitly, even if you're not realizing it, deprioritizing other things you could be spending that time on. So in a sense, when I was talking about my love-hate relationship with the term hustle, I feel like that discipline of decision-making is really critical where we're saying actually prioritization, understanding that the actions that we're taking are the optimal actions or as close to the optimal actions as we can make them given the level of information that we have at the moment to make that decision is actually as important and in some ways more important than moving fast. Both are necessary, but I'd rather move a bit slower in the right direction than move fast in the wrong direction. And it's even worse than that, as you say, Chris, because if you make decisions that have a positive return on investment, but not aligned with your long-term strategy, the opportunity cost is even bigger because you end up creating the wrong sort of business We've talked about tech-enabled services, businesses, and whatnot. If you're not considering the opportunity cost of these opportunities that come in, you are going to be greedy. You're going to take opportunities that look good, but that ultimately are going to destroy your momentum in the long term and destroy your possibility of being a truly globally significant tech company. Are you tired of hearing your engineers complain about technical debt and legacy code? Well, give them SourceGraph and then they'll be able to do something about it. SourceGraph's batch update tool allows them to make significant updates to code in just a few clicks. Yeah, I love that very much, Yanev. And this idea that you go through life really thinking of yourself as a kind of investor. Where are you going to invest your time, your attention, your resources for maximum return on investment? And you're right, people who are more risk averse than founders and entrepreneurial types will happily put their money in the bank because that feels like a lower risk option that will not risk costing them their $100. But actually, they're almost guaranteed to incur the cost of opportunity. So that person, that safe person who's put their $100 in the bank has avoided the cost of a potential downturn, a potential loss of that $100 to $80 but they have almost certainly paid the cost of that $100 not turning into $150 or $200. But, you know, Yanev, you talked about really big, epic things here, like choosing your business model, avoiding partnering with a partner that is not the most high value, high return on investment opportunity for you. And you know, I'm kind of obsessed with those things, right? Like I've mentioned technology-backed services companies probably in every episode. So those things really matter to me. And those opportunity costs, those massive existential opportunity costs are like just fundamental to startup life. But for this episode, I was really much more concerned about the micro interactions, the interactions of, you know, you're a, a big co-executive who's moved into a startup or you're a founder who's left their job and wanting to found a company. 
you need to be careful about falling into the day-to-day behavior of just a little bit of patience with the world. (laughs) It's just like, oh yeah, no worries. Let's set up a meeting next week. Let's have a coffee and discuss that. Let's see where it goes. Let's introduce a bunch of bureaucracy into this process where we have to triple validate our gut instinct. And what I'm wanting to talk to today is to those people and to those circumstances. And I'm moving a little bit now into the tactics part of the episode, but like have that meeting today, not next week. Set up a recurring check-in every week or twice a week to hold yourself accountable. Have an accountability partner or a manager who is holding your feet to the fire. Don't let decisions linger. Don't start and stop. Don't let yourself drift off your strategy. Be aware of that opportunity cost, not just at an existential level, like a big startup decisions level, but at the day-to-day decision-making, the day-to-day execution that you might have just sitting anonymously in one of the chairs in your startup or scale-up to get stuff done. Completely agree. We're actually making two quite complementary points, which is that Yes, there are those big decisions, but that's not what I even meant. I feel that the fate of your startup, and again, this is true in life in general, is very much the product of the many, many small decisions you make every day, all the time. And if you're not disciplined in making those decisions because you don't understand the long-term opportunity cost of making those decisions, then you are in trouble. And wait until next week is a decision. Taking a partnership opportunity that is superficially appealing is a decision. Having a complex approval process for spending is a decision. And all of these decisions have massive opportunity costs. And if I may, actually, I've just triggered myself into a little rant about bureaucracies, which I think fits into some discussions we've had previous episodes about risk tolerance. That's so funny, Anev, because you actually triggered a rant for me about bureaucracy as you said that. So I think we want to have the same rant. So go ahead. Let's have a rant off. So I was going to talk about expenses policies at startups as a really typical example of the mindset difference. And maybe it's a combination of this hustle, this desire for momentum, which means a lack of bureaucracy and also a comfort with certain types of risk that we've talked about before that in the big picture of things are not the types of existential risks that you should be worried about. Big companies tend to have quite complex expense approval processes and founders or especially people in finance, CFOs, financial controllers want to replicate those sorts of checks and approval processes in a small company. So let's say you need to buy a piece of equipment or you need to take a client to lunch or whatever it is that is important for you to do your job well at a startup. And I'm not just talking about founders, I'm talking about every person at that startup. What you want is for them to be able to just go and do it. Give everyone in your company a credit card. These days, there are companies that service startups with things like credit cards. Give them a reasonable credit limit. Give them some guidelines and then have no approval processes. Get out of the way. You know, when I've had these discussions, sometimes I've I've had people say, well, what if that person abuses it? What if they go off and spend their credit card on massages? I'm like, well, we've given them a thousand dollar credit limit. The maximum cost to our business of someone abusing that card is a thousand dollars. And it's not very likely to happen. And if we have people abusing our company credit cards, we've got bigger problems anyway. But consider the cost, and this is the opportunity cost thing, consider the cost of slowing everybody down by having an expenses approval policy. It is just dumb business. You are looking at micro risks, but you are not looking at the big picture. And I think maybe just to sort of like, I'm following myself from one rant into another here, which is 
the, the concept of risk is actually maybe the most insidious element of missing the opportunity cost concept, right? Because when you are putting controls in of any sort to mitigate risk in your company, that comes with an opportunity cost, which is rarely factored in. So for example, if you get legal advice that you can't launch your product the way you want to, because there's a risk that you might get sued, or there's a risk that you might get a fine from the government. And then you say, well, okay, in that case, I better not do that. You are not factoring the opportunity cost of not making the right product decisions for yourself. So it's incredibly insidious where generally an obliviousness to opportunity cost leads to a, a risk averse culture. And that is the most deadly thing that any startup can have. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of rant I wanted to go on. And actually I have a, a couple more examples just to really bring this home. Recently, I, I was asked to step into a slightly more operational role at one of the startups I work with. And one of the people in culture team asked me, how do you want to handle approving leave? for the team that's ostensibly reporting to you. And I said, approve leave. I don't, what? I don't care about approving leave. I said, they're adults. They can approve their own leave if they think it's appropriate and there's a gap in their work schedule and they've handed off their stuff, they can leave whenever they want and then they could come back whenever they want. They don't need my permission. I don't need to be involved in babysitting your time off. You know, your red line, you know, what your workload is, whether you've handed it off to other people, go take your leave. We had a conversation at another startup about OKRs. We were reviewing OKRs and I think the CEO and I agreed that there needed to be a change in format to some of the OKRs. And so we articulated what that looked like. And one of the people in the meeting said, well, my OKRs are already like that. So do I need to go change them as well? That made me laugh. And I just like, I went on a little bit of a rant in the meeting. I was like, guys, your leadership is here to help. It's here to unblock you and to create space for you to do your best work. If your leaders ask you for something stupid, like to refactor your OKRs, which are already in the right format, then ignore them. Ignore your leaders. Like that's, that is just busy work. If you think your OKRs are already great, then say so, defend them, show them off as they are, and don't just go back to your desk and rework them because your leader told you to rework them. So avoid this messy, useless bureaucracy in your life and in your startups. Find it, identify it, highlight it, and eliminate it and don't take no for an answer. It is your job in a startup and in a scale up to reject unnecessary processes. And I want to emphasize here, bureaucracy is not process. It's unnecessary process. It's unnecessarily burdensome process. Process is important. A methodical approach, a principled approach to getting things done is important, but bureaucracy is death. Cut through it like my wife did, like a hot knife through butter and just get shit done because that's really the story of startup success. Yeah, absolutely. And at Circular, my startup, one of our company values is waste less. When we talk about that, we are really talking about wasting less of every resource, but most especially time actually. And we have what we call virtues that go with each value that sort of talk about concrete behaviors that align with that value. And one of them is make sure you're always working on the most important thing. So this is actually your job. It is not management's job to make sure that you're working on the most important thing. It is your job. If you're working on something and you think it is not the most important thing to be working on right now, you are wasting time. And that goes against our company values. So to your point about the, the person asking if they should refactor their perfectly serviceable OKRs, we need to empower people, not just empower people, but make it clear it is expected of them. It is their job to reject busy work. Yeah. I had a very funny interaction with my direct manager at Uber 
who I think was slightly tipsy or drunk at the time. We were chatting over our equivalent of Slack at the time. It was called UChat. It was late at night and we were just kind of catching up on some stuff. And some subject came up about getting something done. And I basically pushed back. I said, I, like, I don't want to do that or I don't, I don't think that's useful because of XYZ. Again, I think he was slightly tipsy. He's like, I love that you push back on that. And then he kind of sent me this message one line at a time, almost one chat message at a time. He was like, listen, I'm your boss. If the next message, your job is to do <laughs> this next line was like, whatever I say. And I was like, oh, where's this going? This is kind of belligerent. And then the next line was, unless what I say. And the next line was, it's stupid. <laughs> and it's like, then your job is to ignore me. And I was just like, I was sitting at, late at night at home laughing my butt off because, you know, it was a bit surreal. And I was in, I think it was pretty early on at my time at Uber. And I was like, at, at what I thought was one of the most important companies in the world. I had a bit of imposter syndrome trying to keep up with everything. And I was like quite nervous about making sure my boss was happy with me. And for him to like, just make it like a really hilarious late night comment about your job is to ignore me if I'm being stupid. And I just thought, what an amazing culture, like what an amazing mindset. And that's something that I'm going to carry with me in my leadership style is like, your job is to get awesome stuff done. And if I'm getting in your way, then ignore me and keep going. Yeah. And there's actually a lesson here for managers, because one of my formative stories, it's definitely one that I trot out, was also early in my career at Google, my first leadership role was being put in charge of a project that had a lot of top-down energy behind it but was really very problematic to execute. And I knew those problems around feasibility. So I basically set up a three month experiment around feasibility to see if this project could even go anywhere. And it couldn't, it was not a feasible project. So I went to a presentation. This is me still pretty early career in front of the search quality lead. So that's the people who basically were in charge of the Google search engine. So very senior folks. And I also had my imposter syndrome. And I gave a 45 minute presentation about why we should kill this project because it was not a good use of our time to pursue any further. And I was shitting myself. And then I got feedback from Amit Singhal, who at the time was the head of Google search saying, I wish we got more presentations like this from people saying we should stop doing this thing that I am doing. So the management lesson here is it's interesting that both you and I, Chris, have these formative lessons from early in our careers that we still remember, that we still reference about someone more senior than us approving our inbuilt desire to avoid waste and to be mindful of opportunity costs. And that really stayed with us. So if you are leading people, if you're a founder, if you're a manager, realize what a profound impact you can have in this particular way by empowering people and giving them positive feedback when they are the true custodians of the opportunity cost of their work. Yeah, it's so profoundly true. I'll, I'll give one more story and we may, we may cut this out, Yanev, but I remember I was working on some stuff where I had a lot of very opinionated stakeholders and they were really, really obsessed with the numbers, right? The data, the data, the data, the data. They weren't directly in my squad. They were like business development and partnerships and so on. They were just really hassling me in one of our squad reviews. Why aren't you focused on projects that are moving these numbers? These are the KPIs and the OKRs. And I was trying to explain all of the reasons why I felt like these were the wrong numbers. We were looking at it the wrong way. There was some more fundamental things to go do. In other words, we were burning opportunity costs. There was a larger, better opportunity to go after. And it just wasn't landing, right? It just was not landing until finally I blurted out, 
I don't give a shit about the numbers. And, and the whole room went silent. This is a, a very data-driven company, right? And what I had said was basically sacrilege. But I was finding myself unable to get them to stop asking about the damn numbers because the numbers were driving incrementalism. They were asking us to move a number by X percent, but it was not the most valuable number to move, nor the most valuable way to move it. And ultimately, it was a little bit of an outburst, frankly, but, and the whole room went dead silent. But I just refused to focus on the wrong thing. It is just busy work. It's incrementalism. Now, there's obviously all sorts of thoughtful and, and diplomatic ways of articulating yourself around all of this stuff. But sometimes diplomacy, professionalism, hierarchies get in the way and people just don't want to listen because there's kind of inertia and momentum and ego wrapped up in these things. And I'm wanting to encourage everybody listening to our voices today to think of themselves as an entrepreneur, whether they're a founder or a manager or just a general employee at a startup or a scale up and take it on yourselves to eliminate bureaucracy, to fast forward to the future, to have the right kind of hustle and to have a level of impatience with the day-to-day -day friction and frustration, even while you have your eye on that long-term exponential curve and that long-term outcome and uh, go fast and get shit done. And hey, to make it maybe slightly spicier, if you're listening to this and you're a startup or a scale-up employee and you have this impatience, you display this impatience, and rather than having it rewarded or praised as it was for me and Chris, you get shut down repeatedly, you should consider working somewhere else, not only because life's too short to put up with that, but because the startup is going to fail. Right? This is the point of this episode is this is fundamental to startup success. So if you're at a place where impatience with bureaucracy, where impatience with spending time on the wrong opportunities is seen as a negative trait, you are in a place that is very unlikely to succeed and you may as well go find somewhere else where you can succeed. I love that, Yanev, and I couldn't agree more. I think it was a, a couple episodes now where we've said to people, if that's not happening, quit. And I, I think this is definitely one of those moments. Yeah, if you've yeah. tried your best and in good faith, you know, you've tried to move the needle and it's not working out, I 100% agree, move on. And for all of those reasons, life is short and that startup is unlikely to succeed in the long term. So that's been a super cool episode. Thanks for that, Yanev. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. I feel like we got a head of steam going and something we both feel very strongly about. So it was fun. Yeah. Now people constantly contact us and ask how to work with us. So Yanev, how can they work with you? I am pretty much full-time on my startup circular and the rest of my time tends to be soaked up by this podcast. But if you've got a short, punchy bit of help that you need where you think I'm just the right person for it, I'm certainly open to having a discussion. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. And also on Twitter, I'm at YBernstein. How about you, Chris? I'm at Chris Saad on all the social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, you name it. And you can also find out about my advisory work where I do work with a small handful of companies with one-on-one -on -one advisory engagements at chrissaad.com slash advisory. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, rate us, review us, share us with your networks because that's the way we get the word out and ultimately help more founders be more productive with their startups. So we'd really love it if you could share us with your networks and we'll catch you in the next one. Back when I worked at Google, one of my favorite parts of the developer experience was a tool called Code Search. It made developing the code base a breeze so you could understand what was going on so much faster. Seriously addictive stuff. 
and I've missed it ever since, until now. Sourcegraph's code search functionality is built on the exact same technology as Google's code search, so that you can give your software engineers a Google-level productivity boost. Check them out at sourcegraph.com slash the startup podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by N14. We love N14 because they put your priorities as a startup first. For example, most agency recruiters charge a percentage of the candidate's salary, but that means that if you need to offer a little bit more to close the deal, you end up paying more. How does that make sense? So instead, N14 charges you a flat rate no matter what the salary is. Even better, they offer an installment plan so that your precious cash flow is impacted as little as possible. Check them out at n14.io.